This is The Wine World, a wine show where we interview wine people from all over the world. My name is Hein Johansen. Enjoy the show. From the sunny California, Rashad Park and Gavin Channon is with us here on The Wine World today. Welcome. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. You've had two quite different ways into the world of wine. I know you, Raj, was born in Kolkata and then you moved to Delhi. Yeah, uh, Calcutta, then I moved to, I went to school in the south of India, then I moved to London and then finally to New York. And then finally in California, I moved to California in 96. How was your way into wine? By mistake. I was in uh, culinary school in, uh, in New York and that's why I fell in love with wine and I was tasting and learning and we had a wine class and that's how I started and got curious about the grape. Then I first became a sommelier and then ultimately after years of working the floor I was like I should I need to get out of this and do something else. But at the same time you grew up with working with food as well. Yeah since I was a kid my family had restaurants and I was always around food and in the restaurant world and uh so I was always around that, yeah. And you, Gavin, you took an art education first. Yeah, it was actually at the same time. So I, I also got into wine by accident. In 2004, I graduated high school and was headed to UCLA, University of California in Los Angeles, and uh, wanted to get out of LA. So I was looking at a couple options. The main one was to go to Alaska and do the salmon fishing season. I kind of wanted to just have an adventure for the summer. And I ended up at Obon Climat in 2004 um, as what I thought was an unpaid internship. The, the joke was the next year, it turns out they had forgotten to pay me in 04. Um, and I remember calling my dad in, in 2005 and uh, telling him, can you believe they, they're paying me to do this? Like, I should be paying them because we were tasting wine every day. We were working hard. You know, it was such a great education. And I think in 2005, I met Raj for the first time. Yep. We did. Remember uh, par selections? That's right. <laughs> par selections, is that kind of a precursor to... Yeah, yeah. So before uh, I decided anything else, I, I thought that I'll make some wine with some friends and learn the process and I'll, you know, I'll pay for the grapes and the barrels and I'll work with different friends of mine. And that's when I first met Gavin Ross making some Chardonnay uh, with Jim Clendenin at Romain Climat and some Syrah uh, with Steve Beckman. And uh, yes, that's, that was the beginning, 04 till 08. And then finally in 09, we decided to start Sandy. Yeah, and I started Channon in 07. And I think we launched the first wine in 2009. And I think I sold every case of the first Chardonnay I made at the RN74 opening party that Raj invited me to. So yeah, there's a couple connections there. Hearing these stories, I think it's quite different being a winemaker in California rather than being born into a winemaking family in Burgundy, for instance, with all the tradition of both the family and the area there. Yeah, because, you know, in Europe, uh, you usually inherit something from your, you know, from your parents or from your uncle or someone, and you inherit something and you have the land and then you kind of work on the land and you make the wine. Uh, Though now things are changing in Europe too, and there's many different small micro negos and people who are buying just grapes and and uh, renting vineyards. So, but I guess tradition is definitely uh, you know owning your own land. Uh, in California, it's difficult if you're young and you have no money to own land. 
So uh, in Gavin's case, he bought grapes and, and made wine in uh, a friend's uh, facility. And I started that way, but in the end, we, we got an investor and we planted a vineyard and went that way. So it's, you know, there's two different ways of doing it. Uh, either way, it's not like, you know, my parents are now in the wine business and uh, Gavin didn't inherit anything himself. So it wasn't, so it's hard in, in, in the new world to do that. And another difference is that in Burgundy, for instance, being a negus was something that historically was looked a bit down upon, but you don't have any of the same view on negotiations in California, as I gather. No, I think especially in Santa Barbara and Sonoma, probably the same way, maybe Napa less so. Um, most most of the top producers uh, either lease vineyards or purchase fruit. It, it's it's so difficult to plant a vineyard just financially. That's That's generally the best output. And then if you want to find old vines and these great little sites, you know, for the most part, those, you know, you can't, when, when you talk about buying and developing a vineyard, you're, you're buying bare land and planting something. That's really the only way it's kind of quasi affordable. So yeah, I see that. I'm not sure what your perspective is. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's the same. It's, uh, it's like we, we planted the vineyard and, and you know that, that, you know, the bank will own you for probably an entire lifetime. Uh, and that's fine, but not everyone wants to be in, you know, in debt for the entire life. For, for us, it's, it is what it is because it'll be paid off eventually and the next generation will have something to work with. And looking at you guys also, it seems to me that the winemaking environment in California is quite tight. Yeah, I, I would say it's pretty tight. It's also competitive, which is good. I think if you look at even just my, my time in the wine business, which I started in California in 2004, everyone's improved. The growers have improved. The winemakers have improved. There's more there's more people, and I think it's forced everyone to constantly work on their craft and get better and better. So I see it as a, as a big positive. And then, yeah, when a piece of equipment goes down or you need help, it's generally, uh, I once called a stranger about renting a piece of equipment uh, that we needed in a hurry, and uh, uh, who was based in Santa Barbara, and he told me, um, he said, oh, just come take it. I know it's an emergency, so I'm not even going to charge you. So there's a lot of that too. Uh, so I, I love it. It's a great, it's a great area to make wine in. We've seen climate changes all over the world. Is that something you see in California as well? Oh, it's everywhere. Climate change is it's something you can't you can't avoid. Uh, for us, it's a kind of a cool climate. So at least in the San Rita Hills where we are, the vineyards are on the east-west valley, so you have a cold wind and and it's pretty foggy most of the time. Uh, in the summer months especially. So with this change in weather, we've seen that, you know, for example, 19 was a warmer vintage as a whole, but the high temperatures in the daytime were quite low, but the nights were warmer. So as a whole, you know, we, we, it was pretty perfect ripening. So of course we see these these changes and we have to adapt in when we pick and, 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 and how we... Uh, how we tend to the vines, but it's not extreme yet where we are because we are so close to the ocean. Uh, I guess if you're inland, it's more of a problem. Yeah, and where I've seen it is in our, our winters have been warmer and warmer, which in 14, 15, and 16, we had harvests that basically started a month early. The harvest was about the, the correct amount of time, but because the winters were so warm, we had early bud break, and then we those were also the drought years, so we didn't have any water for frost protection. So that could have been a disaster if we had had an early frost in any of those years. 
And how many days is the normal ripening time? We generally get in Santa Barbara about 130 days, which is which is kind of shocking. Um, it's always funny when I started, and I mean, Raj was right in this, in, it, kind of leading the charge. But when I started in Santa Barbara, ripe wines were still dominating California in a big way. And people talked about hang time. And it's kind of funny to look back on it because we, we already get about 30 more days than a lot of the world. Um, so do we really need 50 or 60 extra days? Uh, but it is pretty amazing. If you look at those 30 extra days, that correlates into 600 hours of sunlight, which if you look at the the uh, solar companies have done great research with, cause trying to sell everyone solar, with sunlight hours. And, we, and that's basically exactly what we get. We generally get about 1,900 hours of sunlight between April and September. And most regions get about 1,300. So I think restrained California Chardonnay and Pinot with that bright kind of California freshness to it is is what it's all about for me. I was talking to Eric LeBelle, who just passed the role of Salamaster of Krug over to Julie Cavill. He said that in the course of the last 25 years, the average ripening time for Champagne has gone from 100 days and down to 82 days, which is a really short ripening time. I think this is mainly because they utilize some really quick ripening varieties of Chardonnay and Pinot there. But it is still such a huge difference between your reality and theirs. Yeah, yeah, it's a shorter, it's a shorter season for them, and it's it's uh, it's warmer in the short time, you know. So there's so many days above 30. We we barely have many days above 30 Celsius. Uh, we are in the summer months. Usually the high temperature is 26 to 28. Uh, in July, for example. So it's it's a very different growing season. And stylistically, you've both said something to the effect of making new world wines in an old style way. What are both the similarities and differences in your stylistic choices? Yeah, I think um, that's a good question. Uh, you know, it's interesting. There's There's kind of a handful of producers in Santa Barbara that I think we would both kind of agree on on a lot of things, but everyone does things in a different way. Everyone does the small things differently. So I do think there's a there's a fingerprint of personality on everyone's wines, which which is something that you find in in my opinion in, in great wine. So I think if you add up all the tiny things we do differently. And then there's probably some some you know some techniques here and there that I'm sure we work differently on. But yeah, I think that's that's part of the fun of it. Yeah, I mean I was I pretty much grew up drinking European wine. Most of my time of travel has all been in Europe. So definitely what how we think is definitely in that style. So, uh, But we know we are in a California weather cycle and we have a lot more sun, so we would adapt in that way. But uh, I use a lot of old school, a lot of whole cluster in reds, concrete tanks, uh, very reductive in whites. And uh, yeah, so just old techniques I've learned from from people, mentors, and friends in Europe. So it's pretty much, in, but doing it in, in California. Yeah, and the way, the way I see it is we have this amazing climate that we've already talked about. Um, my challenge is really finding great pieces of soil because Santa Barbara, a very rich agricultural area, um, but a lot of boring soils that are great for crops or sugar beets or strawberries, uh, but not really for grapes. So really looking for tiny little crannies of great soil, unique soil, that then is combined with this great climate we have is is kind of kind of the mission. And for clonal varieties, do you use the Burgundy clones or are there other clones that you use? I, I don't do many clone things. Uh, I prefer selections and the diversity in the vineyard. 
from uh, from different selections. So in our own vineyard, we don't have many uh, Burgundy uh, selections except for some in Chardonnay. In Pinot, we don't. We usually go with uh, either uh, cuttings from Burgundy or from heritage selections brought from Burgundy second generation. So, but I don't pay much attention to clones personally. Yeah, and I, I mean, we probably work with. 12 different clones of Pinot, but I have to agree with Raj. I, I think uh, cl- clonal selection gets overblown. I'm also mostly working with vines that were planted before I was born. So it's not like we have a choice of necessarily uh, planting here or there. So my thought process is find a great piece of soil with good, healthy vines, hopefully old vines, and, and go from there. Would you talk a bit about the market position? For you focusing on the Burgundian grapes of Pinot and Chardonnay, and Burgundy having had some difficult years prior to 17, it seems to me that you've been able to strengthen your position on the world market, especially as it seems that California has a bit more stable weather than Burgundy. It's hard to compare Burgundy and California because Burgundy is a finite region where you can't plant any more vineyards. Uh, in, In California, you can plant anything anywhere without any restrictions. So it's a, it's a hard comparison. Having said that, we've had some challenging years, uh, three in a row, 14, 15, 16, 14, uh, very early vintage, a big crop you couldn't control because it was such an early, early year, and 15, very cold, uh, cold spring, cold flowering, and I think crops were down between 20 to 80%. And again, 16 was also another drought vintage. So, you know, we, we adapt because we, you know, we can always go buy grapes if you have, if you don't own vineyards, but in our own vineyard, for example, in 15, we lost more than 60% of our crop. But then most of California is buying grapes. So you can't compare California and Burgundy because in Burgundy, you only have a finite amount of land and you can't just go and find more grapes versus in California, you can do that. Yeah, and I, I think Burgundy's by far my favorite wine region. I first went there with Raj in 07 and, and Jim Clendenin, one of my mentors. It's been really interesting in the marketplace because we now sell more wine in Europe than, than we do in the U.S. for probably a number of reasons. But I think especially in the traditional European markets uh, like the U.K., you, you deliver classically styled wines uh, that are handmade, old vines, capable of aging, but delicious young because of that sunshine and the climate we talked about. So I think it checks a lot of the boxes for very serious classical Burgundy drinkers. And the price point, while, while the wines aren't cheap by any means, are, are a huge value compared to Burgundy. And of course, Burgundy is only getting more expensive as it should because it is finite, uh, but it kind of leaves us in a, in a nice spot where there's a lot of people now looking for, for new things that still match their, their palate. And a lot of people are discovering Santa Barbara. And I think for my sake as well, working in the restaurant industry, I think that Burgundian style, well, perhaps it's wrong to say Burgundian, classically styled Pinot and Chardonnay coming out of uh, California is very accessible, both in the way that it does well for drinking young and that it is at a price point that a person working as a sommelier actually can afford. Yeah, and as as my company gets older, it's, uh, believe it or not, it's been 14 years now. I did the... Terrible at math, so I did the 10-year anniversary party last year, and I was counting the years in the shower, and I was going, oh, wait, it's been 13 years, not 10. Uh, but we're just at that point where I keep back stock of everything I've ever I've ever made, which is something I learned from Jim Clendenin and Bob Lindquist. And um, to be able to, to go to Norway or go to London and bring a almost 15-year-old bottle of wine and show how serious it is and how it can deliver has, has been 
you know, a, a real treat. And we can finally prove it. When I started the company, I was talking to sommeliers and I'd always say, you know, I love old wines. I want the wines to age. But it was kind of silly because I only had one vintage, so I couldn't really show anything. And we're just getting to that point. I think once we cross the 20-year line, we'll really kind of be in good territory. But yeah, it's been, it's been fantastic for the, for the European markets for sure. Do you think that people will continue to collect and drink old wines in the rates that we have been? It seems to me that both more and more young people can't afford to put down wines for aging, and most of the sommeliers don't get to taste these wines either. Yeah, it's definitely going to be harder in the in the future. So I think it's good for some producers to save some wines themselves and come back and release them again maybe five years later or ten years later. But you have to have a financial uh, stability to, to do that. And I think that, you know, for... Uh, a starting winery or estate, you, you know, the first 10 years are the hardest to kind of, you know, build inventory and then have cash flow also to pay your bills. But I guess that once you go over the hump, you can start to save wines. We just released some older vintages of wines here in Norway, small quantities. And I think it's a, it's a privilege to have. And I think it's important to share uh, the story from the beginning or just to, just to, just to show that you know, you were serious from day one. And, and sometimes, you know, not all wines age well. Some wines are just like fall apart in five years and then you just learn from that. But I think it's important to kind of showcase where you started from. I visited Emilio Pepe some years ago and he decided starting in the early 60s that he would put down at least half of his vintage every year for aging. At this time, Abruzzo had no quality wine production. Just think of the audacity of doing something like that. I like the confidence of we're going to age this forever. It's amazing how many California wineries don't keep anything. Not you know, we. I don't keep anything for commercial reasons. We don't sell the library, but we, we use it for tastings or dinners or just for research. So it's not huge, but it's amazing how many serious California wineries don't have a single bottle. It always it always shocks me because I'm, I'm kind of the exact opposite. And you have both been using different market names for different projects as opposed to to using one single name to brand different projects. Why have you chosen to do it that way? Yeah, I mean, so for me, it was always kind of a hustle. So I started the, the company when I was still in university with my, my savings, which wasn't very big. We made six barrels of wine. And then the next year, I think I did 15 barrels, which was a huge jump. And we slowly just grew on the profits. No, no bank would lend us money. Uh, we didn't even bother to ask. So... Uh, I worked at Obon Climat while I made Shannon for a long time. And then I started Ludum with a partner in 2011. And we did that for six or seven years. And then that kind of went its own way. So Shannon's 14 years old, but this is actually the first year I've been 100% independent without side jobs. So it's always been a labor of love. And uh, yeah, it's it's been a great year. Uh, or last year, I'm sorry, it was the first year. It's been a great year. But in order to make certain things happen, you, I, needed a, I needed a job. So it was just... A practical thing. I just did an interview and someone asked me, uh, no, I did a sales meeting and someone asked me if I came from the tech industry. And I said, no, I came from high school. And I mean, my, my, I've worked in wine since I was 18 years old. My other jobs were I was a lifeguard at the Mulholland Tennis Club. I was a receptionist and, and I used to walk dogs on the weekend around my neighborhood for money. And that's, that's, that's what I got. So, you know, I, one of the few people in the wine industry who hasn't worked in restaurants so I, I've never had that experience, but uh, yeah, I'm kind of 100% wine and that's it. And you, Rush, you've got both Sandy, you've got Eveningland, you've got Domaine de la Cote. Yeah, 
Yes, you know, I'm still always uh, involved in restaurants also. Just, uh, you know, that's why I kind of grew up working in restaurants. So I still consult for a restaurant company. I have a small restaurant myself in Santa Barbara with a friend of mine. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, uh, again, owning vineyards is, uh, is uh, the word owning is you, it's backwards, you know, they own you, you don't own it. So uh, yeah, it's, it's a balance. And when did your balance go from working mostly in restaurants to working mostly with making wines? I still do, I still do some consulting, uh, but yeah, it was in 2013 because that's the first vintage Domaine de la Cote released in 13, 11 vintage. And I just had to spend the entire month of October to promote the wine and show the wine. And at that point, I was like, I can't, you know, I have to get off the floor because it's going to happen again next year. And and I had to focus more on, on showing the wine. And, you know, we only made uh, 1,600 cases and we struggled to sell it through one year, you know. So because uh, no one knew, you know, no one knew the wine and uh, it took a while. So I think that's when... End of 13, I moved to Santa Barbara, and then since then I've you know, been on the road you know, showing the wine, and, and now we are kind of in a somewhat stable position where the wine sells out in one calendar year. But uh, for the first, uh, whatever, the first 10 years, it didn't. I read somewhere that you got this gig in developing the wine program for the Millennial Tower that you got a $4.5 million budget to buy wine for. No, no, that's, that's not true. No, 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 no. That that was a, that was, I opened a restaurant there. I lived there in the building. I opened a restaurant there, and that was the budget of the whole restaurant. That would be crazy if I had that yeah, much. Yeah. That was our, that was R N seventy four. Yeah, it was, a, it was a pretty big seller. It was in excess of a million dollars, but uh, not four point five. So that was the opening party where I sold uh, most of the Chardonnay to Psalms from all over San Francisco, and I I think we were one of two. Shannon was one of two domestic Chardonnays on the opening list, which was something I'm still proud of. To, to get onto some of these restaurants' wine lists, especially, I mean, that was the hottest wine restaurant in the U.S. for sure. But especially when you go abroad and you look at some of these great re- restaurants, they might have 10 California wines. They might have 20 California wines. So I think there's more than 10,000 wineries in California. So I, I always, to me, that's better than a huge score or a huge sale, you know, because we you're you're that's a huge vote of confidence that you're one of two or one of 20 out of 10,000. So that's something I've always always remembered from those early days. I wanted to ask uh, about the Rachet Pa Wine Club. At one point, I bought a case of the Pais and a case of the Monday Club, and I still don't understand. What is what is the Rachet Pa Wine Club? Uh, think of it like uh, an alter ego. It's the, you know, we make Chardonnay Pinot Noir. That's That's our day job. But I'm curious uh, about other things. I travel around, and I wrote a book uh, a year last year, year and a half ago or so. And I travel everywhere, and you know, the book was about called the the Atlas of Taste, and all over the all over Europe, and tasting wines with classic producers, and and I got you know I came back with lots of different ideas and knowledge of how wine is you know wines are grown and wines are made and. I decided to kind of, in a very small scale, apply that knowledge into California and try to find old vineyards uh, around California, a special story of vineyards like, you know, we started making, you know, things like Cabernet Franc or, you know, Semillon, uh, 
planted uh, Pulsard and Savignon and, and Mondos and Gamay and, and uh, different things, you know, Zinfandel from uh, Amador, Pais, oldest vineyard in California, producing grapes, 1854. So these things, and then they're very small quantities. It's, uh, it's more work than not, because if making wine from one, one or two tons of grapes is a lot more work than, and then you have to sell it somewhere, and instead of loading it up with, to a distributor or importer, you just, you know, we sell most of it through, uh, directly through our own channel, through our website, and through word of mouth and Instagram and stuff like that. Uh, it's just a way to kind of fulfill my curiosity of, uh, of other things, other grapes, and yeah. There is this threat on imposing a 100% import tax on European wines being imported to the U.S., How do you think that will affect the U.S. market? I mean, for me, it's a disaster. As a one, as a wine lover, two, um, I actually think the competition's good. Um, so I have heard a very rare, you know, this this might be one out of a hundred winemakers say, "Oh, it'll be easier to sell California wine." But I don't. I actually don't think that's true. I think it's it's easier to frame our wines and to explain our wines when you have uh, more wines from Europe coming in, and then three. We sell a lot of wine to Europe, so I don't want to. I don't want to see any tariffs anywhere on wine, and usually wine gets left out. I mean, I remember when uh, when uh, Russia had all those bans on uh, foreign products, especially foreign food coming in, and they were throwing away huge amounts of food that was stuck in ports and doing all these weird things. Uh, European wine was still allowed in, so I hope I hope no one messes with wine. That's all I got to say. Yeah, I, I think it's a disaster. I, I hope it doesn't happen because it'll destroy the culture of drinking great wine in, in California because you can't afford the great wines of, of, of Europe. And then you're left with, you know, wines for what we produce, which is, which is fine. But I think the reference point is Europe. Uh, I think it'll, it'll be a shame to get there. And I think many of us are fighting hard and doing petitions and doing whatever we can to kind of fight this because it will change the culture of, of drinking in, in the U.S. And that, that's the biggest problem. And then so many people will lose their jobs, small companies, small importers, small distributors, restaurants will go out of business because uh, they're based on, on European wine and if they can't support their clientele, they can't support, uh, you know, give them what they want, you know, it's going to be a pretty dramatic hit on the on the economy as a whole there's nothing good about it that that's for sure what do you guys drink when you're not drinking your own wines i never drink my own wine almost never you only drink that much wine and we drink a lot of our wine when we are when we are traveling uh and doing events at home no i want to try something else i'm curious about so many other wines yeah yeah i i agree with raj i think uh one it's it it's not enjoyable. And a, a writer friend of mine put it into perspective that it would be like writing a book and going on vacation and laying on the beach and trying to read it. Like all you see is the mistakes, the questions, the things you think you can improve on. So it's it's good to taste and be critical, but to really actually sit sit back and enjoy a glass of wine, at least in Santa Barbara, it's, it's never my own wine. Uh, and I'll, I will say the exception is with some older bottles I can they're far enough in the past that I can say, oh, I, I remember back in 07 and 08 how different things were and, and enjoying that. But yeah, at home, it's always, it's mostly European wines, but always not my own wines. So 
what are you into now these days then? I have weird drinking habits. The winter I drink, I drink mostly white wine. And in the summer, I drink mostly red wine, believe it or not. It kind of makes sense, the richness of white wine. I, I At some point, I just gave up and uh, I just drink what I feel like. I drink a lot of Italian wines these days. And, you know, I kind of bounce around. And the advice I give to new wine drinkers is find one wine you like. And all you have to do is do a little bit of research, maybe try another wine from that same producer, another vintage, maybe try the neighbor of that producer and then you know, something similar made across the world. And I've, I follow that advice myself. So I, I bounce around. I think I, I'm a closeted lover of Bordeaux, especially old Bordeaux. And, uh, and obviously Burgundy is a reference point. Rhone is as good as it gets. I think Raj's home-cooked Indian food with uh, Covro tea is about the best meal anyone can have. Faro and nettles. There you go. Uh, yeah, in winter, definitely lots of Rhone wines, but I drink lots of Savoie nowadays. Uh, of course, Jura, Savoie, you know, uh, Burgundy can't afford much anymore. So unfortunately, Burgundy drinking is whatever I have in my cellar, I kind of slowly am drinking and I can't replace it because uh, back in the day I could buy full cases of wine and, and now it's difficult to buy a few bottles and uh, once in a while but you can drink it in restaurants and stuff but or your friends open it for you so for everyday drinking it's mostly Jura, Beaujolais and Savoie. And how about champagne? Do you drink any champagne? Yeah, I, no, I, drink, I drink a bunch of champagne. Uh, yeah, champagne is, I love champagne. You said you started a small project in champagne. Uh, a friend of mine, just a little tiny little champagne from uh, Limonil Surogere. And uh, started in 16, and we'll release the first vintage later on this year. And you like your champagne more on the acidic uh, kind of uh, head of the spear kind of style? Uh, yeah, I, I like it more on the dry side, but it has to have weight. I don't like it. I like it dry, but not too lean. It has to have some some density to it. But, you know, old champagnes are... I, I like old champagne too, but those that have higher dosage is fine. But... Mostly, you know, if you're drinking without food, a uh, nice, crisp Blanc de Blanc, a low dosage. And if you're having something with food, maybe something more with red fruit. If you guys were to look into the crystal ball, as it were, tell us a bit about how the wine market would look like in 10 years' time. Do you think there will be dramatic changes? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I was thinking about this the other day, that sometimes it feels like time's moving by fast. Last year went by really fast for me personally, but... When, you, when I look at the last five years, it's almost like everything's changed at the same time. So I don't know how to predict. I could say what I, what I would like to see happen is, you know, continuing to grow kind of a, a worldwide group of collectors, having them understand Santa Barbara, visit Santa Barbara, dive into the wines is, is something that always kind of helps me wake up and, and get after it. So we're already seeing that start and I hope that just continues. And if it does, it's going to be fun to see. That would be my positive prediction. Hopefully there's the tariffs don't happen and there's no negative prediction. Uh, yeah, 10 years. Oof. There'll definitely be change. We know that. Uh, there'll be a lot of regions which will have to probably start thinking of changing grape varieties or adding different grapes. We'll see that for sure in the next 10 years. Uh, people have to change the way they plant, the way they prune, the way they trellis, the way they farm. Just all things are going to happen, and depends how fast it happens. Uh, depends. Uh, hope this world exists in ten years. Uh, not to be negative, but it is uh, is more uh, negativity spiraling out down uh, into the world more than positive energy. So hopefully that'll change. I hope that the consumers start recognizing 
more about sustainability, more about varied practices, more about organic, biodynamic, and beyond that, more about how we lose energy from how we farm and, uh, you know, learn more about permaculture and natural farming and that kind of stuff. So I think that, I think that so far, uh, everyone pays attention to the taste of wine, which is great, but then to exist in this planet and still kind of evolve, I think that in the next 10 years, we'll hopefully see a change in, in people's uh, perception of what they're drinking and where it's from. Of course, recognizing good wines, but also paying attention to, uh, to the human evolution or destruction. I think it's worth recognizing as well that we are living in a golden age of wine now, with historically good wines are being made in Champagne, in Burgundy, in California. And in that standing on the top of the mountain and looking down, hoping that you can ascend further, but also the possibility of plummeting is both interesting and scary at the same time. You mentioned uh, Savoie, and I think that Savoie has been very interesting of late. But maybe three years ago, nobody had heard of Savoie. And going further back a couple of years, we've been seeing uh, Jura growing immensely, not to speak about the revolution going on in Spain. Yeah, and I think part of that is a byproduct of what Raj talked about with certain classic wines becoming not only extremely expensive, but even if you can afford them, very hard to get allocations of. So... People have been forced to look elsewhere, and I throw Santa Barbara into that mix as well. And um, it's kind of it's kind of a nice byproduct if you think about it. It's, it's forced people out of their comfort zones, try new regions, try new things. Um, and and for me, I think it's it's wonderful to see. How do you feel that you've been welcomed in the Scandinavian market? I, mean, I think I think it's worth mentioning what uh, the the joy we have in being here in, in Oslo and Norway, I never expected that we'll sell wine outside California, outside the U.S. And, yeah. and to think that, that we come here, you know, once or twice a year, uh, it's, it's uh, remarkable for us because we, like, we, like, we love it because there's so much interest in the wine and in our wines of our region. And I think it's, you know, we are, uh, as you said, we are very privileged to be in this, in this golden age of 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 uh, showing wines, our wines in an unbiased market and not looking at uh, uh, wine from any perspective ex- except that it's good wine from from uh, Santa Barbara. Yeah, and I, uh, if you would have told me 10 years ago we'd be out here in Norway, um, you know, selling wine at great restaurants and meeting great people and doing all these things, which now seem kind of normal because it's been a couple of years, I would have said you were out of your mind. I mean, 10 years ago, I just wanted to sell a couple more cases in San Diego. So that, that kind of worldwide reach is uh, something that I think is beautiful about wine because wine's the only food product that's really designed to travel. It's, it's put in a container specifically to travel, whether that's a barrel or now bottles. So I think it's beautiful that we can bring San Fernando Benedict, Domaine de la Cote, Bienacito, all these vineyards basically across the world and, and show people a little slice of California. And especially the smell. I have this friend who's a carpenter and he was set to restore this old uh, eucalyptus chest. And then he started cutting in it and it's about 300 years. And then suddenly you get this notes of eucalyptus just pouring out from it. And I think that wine is the only other uh, uh, carriage that I can think of that travels smell across time in that way. Yeah, it's it's a living product. It, I mean, wine has it's born, it dies, it has highs, it has lows. 
it bounces back. I think it's really kind of a amazing thing. And um, yeah, to be able to do that in California and share that with people all over the world is a blessing. Thank you so much for coming, Rashad Parr and Gavin Channin out of California, USA.